You're listening to the Jazz Session with my dad, Jason Crane. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. This is episode 355. Thanks to the Respect Sextet for the theme music to this show. They're online at respectsextet.com, and you can buy all their music there. Please do. Thanks to Dave Rabel. He is online at twitter.com slash Dave Rabel, V-R-A-B-E-L, and he designed the show's logo. All About Jazz carries this show on their website, allaboutjazz.com, and they've got a widget that you can install on your site, and it'll show the latest episode of the show. If you do that, please let me know because I'll mention you in my newsletter. You can get that newsletter by going to thejazzsession.com and clicking on mailing list. It comes out each week. Also, while you're there, please join the show. You can do it for as little as $10 a month or $110 a year if you prefer to pay in one lump sum. Uh, every membership really, really helps keep the show alive by keeping me alive. So please, please do become a member of the Jazz Session. It, it is literally true the Jazz Session has paid my rent many times. So please become a member. If you get this show on iTunes, as most people do, I hope that you'll uh, take a second to review the show on iTunes. I've actually never asked you to do that before, and I should have been doing it for all of these five years. Uh, because the more you review the show positively, the higher up in the rankings it goes, and the more likely other people will discover the show. So please do take a minute and write a review of the show on iTunes. It can even just be, hey, this guy is easily the single greatest thing ever to be broadcast in any medium ever. It could be something as simple as that. Uh, I am also a poet, <laughs> as you can tell by the sparkling repartee you're currently enjoying. I have a blog, jasoncrane.org, where my poems are posted, and I also actually have a book that somebody else published, uh, Foothills Press. It came out in 2010. It's called Unexpected Sunlight, and you can get it at jasoncrane.org slash store. My guest today is Tierney Sutton. She's got a brand new album out, which in many ways chronicles the kind of music that has become identified, the various kinds of music that have become identified with the American experience, or at least at least several of them. And we'll hear a track from that album and then my conversation with Tierney Sutton. Just a poor wayfaring stranger, a traveling through this world of woe, and there's no Going there 
My guest is Tierney Sutton. She and the Tierney Sutton Band have a new CD called American Road, and it's a pleasure to see you and have you on the show. Thanks for having me. Is there something that makes a, a piece of music quintessentially American to you? It's a, an interesting selection of pieces on this record, and they do seem to have that thread, but I can't tell if it's put there because I know the CD is called American right. Road or not. You know, this was a little bit tough because on the one hand, everything that we've ever recorded, uh, with very few exceptions, could fit within the 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 heading of American music because we mostly do the Great American Songbook. Um, at the same time, I think we all wanted to uh, address some Americana songs, and there were several that we looked at that we didn't end up doing on the record. Several that we prepared for other records that we thought might be on this record that didn't end up being on this record. Um, each CD that we do, the the selections of music. Uh, have a kind of percolating process and what ends up being there uh, I, I almost always am able to organize it in my head but it's a kind of circuitous process I mean we we started from the standpoint of knowing we wanted some real Americana um, that wasn't great American songbook like um, the water is wide and uh, amazing grace um, and uh, wafering stranger but other than that I really felt that um, the two musicals that, in my mind, for whatever reason, maybe somebody could argue with this, but the two musicals that are sort of the quintessential uh, early American musical would be Porgy and Bess, and more modern would be West Side Story. I just sort of think of those two uh, in a specific part of my mind. I mean, for one thing, um, Gershwin is... I would say if you had to pick one great American songbook composer, just one guy, he'd kind of be the guy. Uh, and then with West Side Story, you have a moving into the modern era, and you have Sondheim involved. And Sondheim is so key to modern great American songbook. So, Why was it important to the band to have Americana on this record? What was it that sparked that? Idea. I think we all had that feeling. Um, I'm not really sure. I think, as I said, we, we think of m m most everything that we've done up to this point as being American. So it was how do you, how do you make it even more American and more kind of, um, boiled down to essentials, you know? And for me, like the melody of, uh, O Shenandoah, it's just one of the most beautiful melodies that I can think of. And I just, um, it makes, it reminds me of the beauty of, you know, the American landscape. I grew up in Wisconsin and we travel a lot and we're always driving through, you know, places and, and seeing how, how pretty large parts of the country are and having some connection with that. We also were doing this record and preparing the material in a year where we traveled a ton and we were on the road a lot. So it kind of felt, you know, appropriate. Yeah, I wanted to ask, where is the, I think it's called, if I can see the coffee mug properly, the Halfway House Cafe, is that right? Yeah. Where is that? That is in uh, Canyon Country in, in, uh, outside of LA. And, uh, 
the funny part of that is that we got to, we got there and Kevin Axt, who was working on the design for the cover and did the design for, for the cover and is also our bass player, he found the location because he and our drummer Ray Brinker had ridden motorcycles up there and said, this just looks really cool. Let's, let's try this. And it had kind of colors, you know, blues and reds and stuff. And we got there and there was this bright red vintage Cadillac convertible parked in front of it just by coincidence and so we said to the guys we're doing an album cover thing and we've got it we got to use your car <laughs> yeah so. it's fantastic as soon as you i mean it's like the classic it's so funny because they're in the, europe that's the cover of the record is it really is me in the car yeah i was it's so interesting that you said that because i was looking at this and thinking wow that's a really interesting thing to put inside the record and it it is kind of quintessentially american in another way, um, mm-hmm. in a way not expressed by Gershwin or really mm-hmm. by West Side Story either. I mean, kind of that like great expanse right. of America that I think some of the Americana pieces on here really speak to. Right, right. And it's so interesting too when you look at the songwriting credits in this album. You know, the there's the Gershwin uh, and of course the the uh, Bernstein, but a lot of them are just listed as traditional. And it's so right. interesting that this body of music, all of which is instantly familiar to almost anyone who's grown up in this country the origins of it are kind of lost right. somewhere in the midst. It's like it's evolved with the United States in some way. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, it, it's strange. I, I had a lot of ideas that weren't able to come to fruition uh, uh, in this album. That my two, my two regrets are that I wanted to have more of a, a, a gospel presence on the record and had thought about doing an introduction um to Wayfaring Stranger, which sometimes I do in live shows of uh, sometimes I feel like a motherless child a long way from home. And because that, those themes, but um, Amazing Grace is a, is a 5-4 gospel vibed thing. And so that's, that's connected there. But the other thing that I, I had thought about doing was integrating some uh, Native American flute music into the, the album. Because that's also kind of, in my mind, you know, that's as American as it gets, even though we're not really connected to it in the same way sometimes. And, and some of those themes could have worked really well, but it's just a matter of how much time you have and, and getting things together. But eventually that would be interesting to do. Yeah. If you decide not to put out a triple album, <laughs> then there's right. only so many songs you well, can and include. Well, it's right? also to get the people that can do that, you have to get schedules together and you have to find out when you can get together and really, really uh, collaborate. I mean, the band process is pretty intensive and we, you know, the five of us have to sign off on everything together. So it's, it's pretty, um, pretty heavy just to get us all on board with everything, mm. let alone bringing in outside collaborators, which we sometimes do anyway, but it's tough. Sure.
Uh, I want to talk more about the idea of the five of you signing off on things, but uh, one if I had to pick one thing, one piece on here that to me kind of summarizes what your band is able to do after all these years, nearly 20 years together, um, I think it would be My Man's Gone Now, which for one thing, which goes from so from one feel to the next completely effortlessly. I mean, it has these moments where Ray is just kind of rocking out with this beautiful, like, mm-hmm. very American four-on-the-floor kind of backbeat. And then these really intricate uh, vocal parts that are sung along with the instrumentalists. Um, and it really... It, the whole thing kind of turns on a dime, and it sounds effortless, which seems to me the kind of thing you can only do when you all know each other as well as you all know each other. Well, there's a couple of things with that. I mean, I think um, that's part of the aesthetic uh, that L.A. musicians have um, that is, I think, a little bit unique to L.A. players. It's It's not entirely unique, but... Uh, you know, obviously, there are unbelievably great players in New York, and and I love to go hear music in New York, and I'm a huge fan of all sorts of players here. At the same time, something that I noticed when I started to work with my rhythm section almost 20 years ago and started to get to know the way L.A. musicians think, if you're going into a studio and you're given music that's going on a TV show or a movie or or somebody's album, and you have an hour to look at that music, or less, you have a minute to look at that music, and then you have to make it sound like you've been in a band for 20 years. You gain certain shorthand ways of making things seem effortless. I have seen these guys make me mad at times where they play music written by someone who is so crappy and it still sounds great because <laughs> they make it sound great. They make it sound effortless, even though it's clumsy and difficult and not well-crafted and not written for the instruments and not written for the ranges and not written for how the instrument is played <laughs> and in the wrong key and has beats missing. And they just go, I know this is what he meant and I'm going to make it sound like butter. And so that's partly a skill set that these guys have and a way they have of listening that is somewhat unique. Mm. And I guess then when they have music that's well-written and well-crafted, yeah, the distance they can travel is When even. they're in charge and they say, okay, like on My Man's Gone, we spent, you know, a good half an hour or actually days in, in the end deciding the time signature in the in the odd part is 3316 it's a kind <laughs> of course of, it is it's yeah. a yeah of course it is <laughs> it's a groove thing that has a little hump in it has a little extra 16th note and if you um we we had long discussions over how often the weird 16th note should happen should it happen every time should it happen sometimes should it happen here and there and everyone is in charge of that we toured it for a while with Christian soloing over the 3316 why? Because he can. <laughs> and we we would come backstage afterwards, and I would just shake my head and say, look, we know you can, but even you have to think when you're doing that. And no one wants to hear you think. <laughs> and and actually, the people listening need a break. Mm. You know, there needs to be a release there. And Christian surely could have gotten gotten that to the point where it would have sounded totally effortless, but... There's a certain release that the audience needs. And when we're, when we're putting arrangements together, we're not interested in being, uh, 
Keith Jarrett gave us a very nice compliment. I was talking to him backstage at one of his shows, and he said, what I like about your band is that your arrangements aren't clever, and you know what I mean. And I think what he meant was, we don't try to be weird for the sake of being weird. Mm. We try to make something different because it sounds musically cool to us, and it serves the song and serves the music. And when it goes past that point where it's being clever for the point of being clever, we simplify it. And we make sure that there's something accessible. never sounds afraid to draw from outside what we might consider the kind of stock jazz spectrum. I mean, your arrangements incorporate, it sounds like, a much wider listening palette as people than than just jazz. Well, I think that that's, that's to me, what real jazz is supposed to be. It's supposed to be music of the moment where you're bringing in influences of your own time and your own place and your own experience, improvised music that takes from anything that nourishes you. And we all listen to all different kinds of music. The guys have played in all different kinds of bands. And we're fans of all different kinds of musicians and all, all different kinds of music. So uh, to us, we're more afraid of taking from the stock jazz thing. Um, and in in the years that we've been together, there have been times here and there where I've said, you know, and there are things that we do that kind of are stock jazz things here and there. I mean, just that, you know, we just need to throw them a bone and we just need to swing this. You right. Know? And we'll, we'll, we'll do that in a set here and there. But, um, there have been many times where I wanted to do something in a, in a more straight ahead way. And the, the four of them would look at me, their eyes would get big. They would shake their heads and they'd say, do you know how many records we've done this arrangement and this kind of arrangement on? We're not going to do it. And so, Literally, you can't get it through the board of directors if you try to do something that has been done a million times. It's just not going anywhere. And do do you find did you always find that that still spoke to you as the person who had to sing all these songs, or is it something you've had to grow into over time? Um, I think I've grown into it over time, but I I was clear from the beginning that they were great musicians with great taste, and that I would be foolish not to be influenced by them. Mm. Um, 
but I used to kick and scream a lot more than I do now. Now I just let the water enter my lungs very easily. And sometimes I'm the one that says, you know, it's as likely to be me now as it is them. Um, probably about 10 years into the process where I would come in and say, well, let's go to three, four on the bridge and let's, what if we did something strange here and let's go out of time here and check out this groove, you know? So now I, I'm, I'm as bad as they are. So, <laughs> um, we've uh, mentioned them piecemeal, but will you tell us the names of the people in the band? Yeah. Uh, the pianist, uh, is Christian Jacob and, uh, the drummer is Ray Brinker and we have two bassists, Trey Henry and Kevin Axt. And, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure I've seen this in too many interviews with you, but I'd be interested to know, I guess, how you guys got together and when you knew in that process that, okay, this is, we're not just together for this session or this show, but we're going to stay. Yeah, that's that's a, a pretty good question, and it was um, kind of gradual. Um, when I moved to L.A., I, mo- I met them before I even moved to L.A. And I, I, one of the reasons I decided to move to L.A. instead of New York, I was living in Boston at the time, was because I heard them play with Jack Sheldon's big band. And I heard, I heard a bunch of bands in L.A., and I realized... Oh, contrary to popular belief, there are some amazing jazz musicians in this town. And, uh, so I moved to LA and not I, to interrupt you, but was the popular belief that it was mostly a town of studio yeah. players? And the, the idea was that studio players are not good jazz players and that they're somehow empty and vacuous and mm. whatever. Um, and you know, it's just not the case. A, a great musician is a great musician. And some, some people, many players moved to LA because they didn't want to be on the road and they wanted to raise a family or whatever. I mean, Ray Brown moved to LA for the same reason. So it's not, there's always been, um, you know, a core of really amazing jazz musicians in LA, but I, I was ignorant of that. I didn't know that. And I was kind of preparing to move to New York and had been spending a lot of time in New York. Um, but then when I heard the musicians in LA and realized that there were people you know, young people at that time that were my age that, that actually were really serious about doing jazz and that there weren't that many singers in LA that were serious about doing jazz. So not only were these great players in LA, I was kind of an anomaly. Mm -hmm. So they wanted to do my gigs because they would get to play music that was fun. And I kind of did, um, create a, a system whereby the the band kind of was going to form in the following way. When we would do gigs, I would frequently say things like, okay, this is the song, this is the key, Ray, set up whatever you want, and I'll sing over it. And I didn't know that that was unusual. I thought that was being a jazz singer. I thought what jazz was was doing songs in a different way. And... I knew that these guys had a lot of vocabulary and a lot of interesting things. And so that's how our early arrangements came together. And that wouldn't, wouldn't have been odd at all if you'd been a trumpet player or a saxophonist. Right, right. And, but I just didn't know that that was very unusual. And so that's what would happen a lot. I'd say, okay, autumn leaves, this is the key. Do whatever you want. And I, sometimes I'd have the bass player set it up. Sometimes I'd have the drummer set it up. Sometimes I'd have the piano player set it up. As time went on, I even left the key out. I just said, okay, whatever. So this is a song. So usually I pick, pick the songs. Well, as time went on, we recorded our first album, uh, and it was picked up by a European independent label. 
and then Telark heard that record. And um, Oscar Peterson listened to the band and said to Telark at that time, you know, she has a really good band. You should let her record with her band. So it was kind of because of Oscar Peterson that then Telark said, well, rather than hiring Kenny Barron and Lewis Nash and the, the usual, you know, suspects of great rhythm sections to play with you, um, we think you should do it with your band, which was perfectly uh, wonderful to me. But I would have done the other way. I, mm. We weren't completely wedded together at that time. We'd done this this record and we did gigs together and I thought they were great. And during those years, uh, there was a lot of pressure from um, the kind of jazz establishment in L.A., to be honest, where the older guys would, would say to me, you know, you really ought to try so-and-so, who was Sarah Vaughn's pianist for many years. You really ought to work with so-and-so, who's more mature. You really ought to work with so-and-so, who works with singers. Because none of the guys in my band had worked with a lot of singers. It wasn't a singer kind of thing. Mm -hmm. Christian, the only singer he had worked with before me, was Flora Perim. And I'm sorry, she doesn't count. You know, <laughs> she counts as a musician, but she doesn't really count as a singer. It's just not really, doesn't tell you how to play phrasing for ballads. So um, Oscar Peterson kind of just said, you know what, this this band is good. And so... Uh, we went in and recorded our first album, but most of the arrangements were done by me for that album. Uh, we, you know, with some input from the band, but, but largely me. And then the second album, Telark said, well, what do you want to do for the second album? And because the first one was an instrumental album called Unsung Heroes with all this instrumental stuff, I thought the second album should probably be, they would want me to do like a meat and potatoes kind of thing. And I said, well, I could do a variety of things, but I also could do a Bill Evans record. And they said, well, we think you should do a Bill Evans record. So I, that made me love Telark for, for wanting to do that. <laughs> That's the record that really turned us into a band because mm. it was our third record. The guys knew that I was coming back to them and saying, let's, let's do this. And because we were doing Bill Evans, they all were invested. They all had a real uh, sense of this has to be a certain way. This cannot be. You know, this has to be serious. And so we spent a lot of time. And from that point on, our arranging was really collaborative. And we knew that we were stuck with each other. Mm -hmm.
And if I have the story right, is does Ray Brown factor into the time between the second and third record and the direction that you chose to take? Um, following he factors that? in uh, third to fourth, second Telark record to okay. third Telark record, and you know. I got to spend an afternoon with him, and we'd done Unsung Heroes, and we'd done the Bill Evans record, and he said, "Sweetheart, it's nice that the musicians like you, but you gotta you gotta record some songs that people have actually heard before." And God bless him, he was really, really right, because it's just too much information to give to an audience where they have to learn the theme, then figure out the weird stuff you're doing with the theme, then figure out the harmony with the theme, then hear your improvisation on the harmony and the rhythm of the theme. It's just too much. Mm. And so you have to give an audience, I think, largely something recognizable as a jumping off point. Although it seems like what you did was just, you you kept the kind of adventurous spirit of the unsung heroes and the bill evans mm-hmm. record and you just substituted material that people had heard before so you still approach the familiar right as if it were the new well and actually if we're approaching something that's terribly familiar we're going to make it weirder than if we're doing jimmy rolls the peacocks right if we're doing the peacocks it's a really weird theme that people have not heard we're going to just play it for them and i might even explain a little bit about it to the audience before and say, this is this beautiful song, this is a lyric, and this is how it goes, and this is, you know, to try to give them something before we do it. And then I'm going to kind of present it fairly simply. But if I'm doing Autumn Leaves, no holds barred. You know, we, you cannot do Joe Autumn Leaves version again. We'll all impale ourselves on a rusty <laughs> fork if we have to do it or if we have to listen to it. So. Sure. mentioned earlier the the kind of collective nature of the band and that's more than just what many people mean when they say this band is a collective this is a collective in a in a business sense and and in the musical sense can you talk a little bit about that yeah um around 2004 2005 we actually incorporated uh that was uh following dancing in the dark which was our fourth or fifth record together and um 
it was just getting to the point where we were on the road so much and I knew the kind of commitment the guys were putting into it. Um, and I really felt like the best thing to do would be to really invest them in a literal sense. And so we incorporated. So I'm the CEO and, uh, raised the CFO. And I mean, everybody's got their jobs they do in the corporation and tasks they do at gigs and all the rest of it. And, uh, we've been functioning that way now for, you know, seven, eight years. Have you noticed a, a change in either the ease of operation or the, the kind of the way things work now that you've done that? For me, um, it was an incredible load off my mind, to be honest, because it, it made it clear and certain things were taken over that had been done by me all the time. And frankly, uh, I started to get paid a little bit more because I was always, I was frequently just dividing it up and giving it to them because I didn't, I didn't want them to make as little as one fourth of what the gig paid. I, I just kind of couldn't, I wasn't that great at figuring it all out. And the biggest part for me was all the decisions of, you know, agents and management and all of this stuff are all things that we make together. And we've, we've made very good decisions about that stuff. And I'm, incredibly grateful for their input on that stuff because they're smart and they've been around the block and that stuff is really hard to navigate when you're an artist Mm. it's not what how our brains work musically i know that you also have a collective approach uh, although i think most of the repertoire is chosen by you but the arrangements are collective is that a fair statement yeah that's absolutely fair and can you talk a little bit about that process when you say okay let's do this what happens next well um it can happen a lot of different ways. Um, in some of the early records, I would come in and bring uh, sketches of things where I would say, okay, here's the three keys of these songs. I, I really like to look at songs in pairings or as part of a series because mm-hmm. it helps me organize and and helps me think about how the variety is going to be. There's a kind of stand back and look at the big picture thing that's mostly me. But beyond that, it's anyone's ball game. So if I walk in and say, okay, I have this little ostinato idea, and this is the key center, let's play with that. Well, what they're going to do with that, you know, what Christian Jacob is going to do with the harmony concept um, with a very simple idea provided by me and what Ray's going to do with the rhythm and uh, what the bassists are going to do with with even the ostinato that, that I suggested is going to be so much more sophisticated than what I had in mind. Um, after all these years, if I think of something as an idea, I'm almost imagining how they think Mm. if I even suggest it. And I think they do the same thing with me. They're imagining how I sing and what would work. So a lot of times uh, something will just come up where um, Kevin and Ray are playing, are just playing some kind of groove at a sound check. Uh, like on Broadway started that way. They were just playing a, a groove at a sound check that they, that they liked. And I thought it was really cool. And I said, let me, let me sing something over that. 
And I had already started scouting songs for this record and thinking, okay, on Broadway would be kind of cool. It's, 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 it's modern and it's, you know, talks about New York and it talks about some very American concepts and it's totally a DNA song that everybody knows. It's a fairly simple theme. So we'll be able to twist, spindle and mutilate and still have it be recognizable. And so I just started singing it over that groove. Um, and then later I said to Ray, what if it starts out with me doing some kind of, uh, ostinato bass pattern vocally that interlocks with a drum pattern? What if it starts out that way? And so those were the two sort of jumping off points. And then everything else in there is mm. the genius of all the guys in the band. And I won't quit till I'm a star on the Is there any sense in which having a band together for this long actually adds some difficulty because you have to find ways to push yourselves out of the kind of idiomatic boxes that the Tierney Sutton band might be in? You know, it's interesting. Every time we do a record, we think that we start by thinking, we do we, can we do this anymore? Can we, it, are we going to come up with anything different? And the standard that we've set for ourselves is pretty high now. And somehow, we do. And it's, it's very weird. I, I don't know. I think that we are all really sensitive to not wanting to repeat ourselves, to not mm. wanting to do the same arrangement that we've done before. So, um, sometimes that's just finding material that takes us out of our comfort zone. But when I look at some of the things on the new record, they're really different places than we've been before. So I don't know, I don't know why we're able to do it. I would think it would be hard, and it is hard. I mean, we have to lock ourselves in rooms, and I have to keep, you know, picking new material and saying, okay, well, that one didn't really work, so let's try this one. Mm -hmm. All right, well, if we're not going to go that way, then we're going to go this way. And then sometimes I just dig my little feet in and say, look, I don't care if nobody knows why we're doing this. In my little brain, I want to do it, and I think if we stay at it, it's going to work. And sometimes one of the guys has that idea too, where they'll just say, look, I have this idea and I think we just haven't executed it well enough to fall in love with it because mm. we all have to fall in love with it and be invested in it. And I don't, I don't mean this next question in any way other than uh, as a thought experiment, but do you ever wonder for yourself what might have happened if 
you hadn't stayed with the you know this band in the beginning, but you had started like using a different rhythm section each time, or you know just working with the the stable of greats who that Telark sure. could call on. No, absolutely. Um, I've thought about it a lot, and I've had a lot of opportunities to do different projects. Right now, I'm doing a um, a trio project with uh, Hubert Laws, the great flutist, and Larry Kuntz, wonderful guitar player, where it's just the three of us, and it's this very airy, open, you know, thing. And it's, it's really fun and, and lovely to do and very improvisational and, and all about tone because Hubert is the tone master of the universe. Um, I've also recently been asked to collaborate with the Turtle Island string quartet. And so I've done a few performances with them and we'll be doing some tour dates. And it's really interesting because it's a totally different set of muscles that you use. Mm. And I'm glad that I have those opportunities because, you know, when I sing with my band, it's almost like, being behind the wheel of this really, really responsive, perfectly tuned car or something, you know, where every, every, uh, I is dotted and every T is crossed. And, and then there are times when we can go places that are just so, so crazy and so improvisational, but never feel unsafe. Mm. It's really interesting. Um, it's a pretty satisfying thing. And our standard of how it's supposed to be, I mean, we want to be transcendent and levitating in the show. And the show can go perfectly honorably. And we can all be depressed afterwards <laughs> because it wasn't transcendent. Mm. And so our standard of what is supposed to happen, and I don't know that I'm going to find that standard uh, again in in my life. You know, so I'm, I'm mostly tremendously grateful for it. But then there are times when I, I do projects with other people and it's just very interesting because it's a different, different brain almost. What's the repertoire like with, uh, Hubert Laws and with the Turtle Island project? Uh, well, the, the Turtle Island project is the working title is Poets and Prayers. Mm. And we're doing some Joni Mitchell. Um, I'm singing on some of the Coltrane stuff that they did. Um, and we're probably going to put some roomy and or Hafez poetry to music. Oh, fantastic. Yeah, so it's kind of this weird combination of devotional poetry and uh, and and prayerful kind of stuff. Which actually some... isn't all that strange with Coltrane or with right. a lot of the things that Joni Mitchell has written. I mean, that's, Absolutely. Yeah, no, <laughs> it's all the piece. poets and prayers. Yeah. That's what it is. <laughs> and so just kind of inspiring music to us. Mm. So that's, that's some of it. Um, and then with Hubert and Larry, uh, a weird... We're doing a combination of stuff, but our, our stuff is, uh, has some, some similar themes. Um, we're doing some Jobim Zingaro. Um, I think we're going to do the theme from Cinema Paradiso. Mm. Um, I think we're, we're probably, we've already recorded sort of half of a record that, that, uh, we're going to finish later. So. That's great. Uh, you've uh, you've had an equally successful uh, parallel career as an educator, and I, I always have wondered. Um, and and some of my favorite singers uh, have come through your door, particularly Gretchen Parlato. I think mm-hmm. is was one of my favorite records last year. Me and, too. Yeah. I agree. <laughs> uh, but I've always wondered, as someone who you have anything but a standard approach to the way people should sing songs. Even I think even the way people sing, I think your your command of your voice is much more finely detailed than a lot of people that I hear. And I wonder when you teach, do you, do you open all those same doors to your students in terms of how they arrange repertoire and things like that as you yourself go through? Or do you have to kind of start with baby steps and <laughs> work you know, up to that? I pretty much, 
give them everything that I know. I often kid them. I'm going to teach you everything I know in a couple of days, and then you're going to go and learn a bunch of stuff that I don't know and have mm. a nice day. And the program I've set up at LA Music Academy, it, you know, they, they do tons of songwriting, which I don't do. I haven't, I've done a little bit of lyric writing. I mean, I, I want to, but I'm just dipping my toe into it. Um, and people like Gretchen, it, with whom I'm very close and in touch with her all the time, uh, you know, she really inspires me and I think I just, I know I can do this, but, um, I really try to give my students, I'm, I'm lucky enough to have from the beginning, uh, have had very talented, really good students come to me. And so when they come, when you're dealing with a Gretchen Parlato, even at 16, she's killing it. You know that there's all this great raw material there. And so when I'm listening to somebody like that, my first thought is I don't want to screw them up. I don't want to make them self-conscious. I don't want to take anything away from what they're going to do. I just want to try to um, encourage them and maybe open their ears to some things that they haven't been exposed to yet. Mm. Um, and I've learned vice versa. So now, one of the main reasons I continue to teach, because it's pretty exhausting and I'm pretty busy and I kind of don't have time to do it, is that my students are so great and they teach me so much. And when they bring in material that I've never thought about or, or haven't ever done or their, their own written stuff, it, it, it's just so delightful and it's so inspiring to me. So it keeps me working. I have a class that, um, I invented. I invent classes for myself to teach that are ways of me practicing. <laughs> so one of the, the classes I have for the, the sixth quarter students who are at the end of their program at LA Music Academy after they have a bunch of repertoire is called the instrumental uh, point of view. And in that class, there's a rhythm section. And uh, one of the things we do in the class is you have to take a song you already know and do it in a different time signature. Mm -hmm. You have to take something you know in three and get up on stage and perform it in five. You have to suss that out, figure it out, come in and do it. Or something in four, in three, at least. Or something in four, in seven, or whatever. And so we work on strange, odd time signatures and getting them comfortable with that. But then there's a part of the class where I have them write down a groove or a bass line that they love. And they're, they're in charge of, of uh, transcribing it, writing it out, getting up on stage, singing it to the band, teaching it to the band and then the band plays it and we everybody in the class gets up and sings things over mm. that groove and so I, I pretty much set up what the guys in my band used to do on live gigs that was the jumping off point and still is for a lot of the arrangements i do so i pretty much give them everything i know can you say a word about the la music academy it's a really cool program. I mean, it's like the mafia. They made me an offer I couldn't refuse. <laughs> I was on, I was on the road and I really, I had been teaching at USC for 10, 11 years and I had quit and I thought I can't do this, you know. And Ralph Humphrey, amazing drummer, called me and said, we need a new, uh, vocal department head. You can hire anyone you want. You can fire anyone you want. You can be on the road as much as you want and you can set up any curriculum you want. <laughs> What, what was I going to say? No, I don't want to do that. And so I said, awesome. And so the first thing I did was I, I hired uh, a great singer, Kathleen Grace, who's one of my ex-students from uh, USC and is a great songwriter, jazz singer, uh, pop singer, songwriter, everything. 
and I, and a great musician. And I knew that she, that she could be me when I wasn't there. So yeah. I said, we need a co-department head. So when I'm gone, there's somewhere where the buck stops. And then we just started setting up stuff, chart writing for singers, piano for singers, guitar for singers, um, uh, repertoire classes in pop and in a great American songbook or American song. I intentionally titled the classes in a kind of loose way so that we can bring in different repertoire. It's not a jazz program, uh, except in the sense that I think of jazz as a set of tools that you can use for whatever music that you're going to do. Mm. And so they do, they have R&B, they have R&B improv. I've integrated a lot of stuff into the program where the classes bring in guests. Uh, in the later quarters, I'm teaching a class this quarter where uh, it's the art of the duo. And the art of the class is that there's a prep day, and then the next week I bring in a guest, and they have to figure out what's the best thing in their repertoire to perform with this accompanist. Hmm. It might be a pianist, might be a guitarist, might be a bass player. And um, what I do is I challenge myself and say, I'm going to sing something with this person that I have never sung with them before, just like you have to. It might be somebody even from my band, but I will give them a piece of music or talk through something and do perform something that I have never done with them so that I'm doing the same thing you're doing. And then you have to figure out based on the skill sets and who this person is, what's the best thing to do with this person. And um, it's just a really fun class. You said something uh, just a second ago uh, about jazz as a set of tools. And like, I, I really couldn't be more tired of the whole what is jazz and that all that crap but uh but i've never heard anyone refer to jazz as a as a practical kind of toolkit before can you say more about that well you know i mean because i've been in in education and and uh educating singers been myself for all these years i've had a lot of time to think about what technically constitutes quote unquote jazz in my opinion for whatever that's worth mm. i mean who the hell cares but what i'll say is that when our kids get up and do a standard next week with Terry Trotter, who I've asked to come in, who was Natalie Cole's accompanist for a gajillion years and is a truly wonderful jazz pianist. And I'm going to tell them, I said, this is one of the only times in the quarter I'm going to tell you this, but I want you to sing a jazz song. I want you to sing a standard. You know some standards. It's a common language. You will end up at a piano bar in Italy someday, and you'll be able to do one of these songs with the pianist at the piano bar because it's a common language. So just know this stuff. And when they get up and sing some tune with Terry and get to the end, and he does a turnaround, and they're able to sing through that mm. in an elegant way because they hear what's going on, those are the tools of jazz. They could be doing a pop song and just be vocalizing very simply at the beginning, but they're hearing the harmony. Why? Because they've studied jazz improvisation. So what, I, what I'll say to them is that once they get to the point where they're working in a duo setting, and sometimes I bring in like a bass player that works on rap stuff, and they're singing over that, or hip-hop. And it's the same tools. When they get to the end, a singer that's kind of uh, green and doesn't have those tools, stops and looks like the deer in the headlights. And the instrumentals play through. And they play improvisationally. And they play around with the four chords that are going back and forth as the, as the song ends. The singer that doesn't have jazz skills just is confused mm. and doesn't hear it and doesn't integrate with it. And so what I'll say to them is, 
All I want you to get out of jazz improv and R&B improv is that last four, four bars of your pop tune to not look like a chump. That's all. <laughs> so it's, I don't care if you never sing a scat chorus in your life. I don't really care. But I want you to hear deep. Mm. And so to me, as a singer, um, the jazz skills are hearing like vertically and not just horizontally. Most singers, they know the lyric and they know the melody. And if something else happens, the time signature or the, the chord changes are slightly different or the tempo, they're just totally lost. Um, and to me, the skill of a jazz singer is to be able to be in the moment, whatever that is, mm. and to sing all the way horizontally, all the, all the, the notes of the chord. about your your spiritual beliefs and how they influence the music that you that you make and the way you make it well the the center of um baha'i belief is the oneness of all religion and the oneness of god and the oneness of humanity and to me the idea of what real jazz is is being at one and even even simply singing a unison with kevin on bass that to me is a spiritual practice. Being in tune, quote unquote, that's a spiritual practice. So, and, and there is a dance. There's a totally spiritual dance um, between musicians. And I think almost every musician that I know can relate to this, where you're in the middle of, of, of playing and you don't know whose idea is what. You don't know you're going with something outside of yourself. And that to me is essentially um, a spiritual endeavor. And it's, um, it's very satisfying and it has nothing to do with the ego. Mm -hmm. It's, it's the, the, the most delicious part of it. And our arranging process is a slightly more down to earth version of the same thing where someone gives an idea but you don't keep pointing at it and saying so-and-so's idea is a bad idea. It's not so-and-so's idea anymore. It's an idea. And, 
everyone detaches from it and then tries to serve it. And those things, I think, are essential to my spiritual beliefs and I think most people's spiritual beliefs. So it, it definitely, um, as time goes on, it gets more and more uh, deep as a metaphor for me. I know you've been a Baha'i since you were a teenager and therefore at the beginning of the time with this band mm-hmm. you were. And I wonder, were you explicit when you started to approach arranging music and operating as a band in the same way that you approach your your spiritual beliefs, or was it not necessary? No, I wasn't at all. I think I, I was, um, uh, I, I realized 10 years into the process that I had uh, subconsciously been doing things according to that belief system, because there's even some very specific writings about problem solving in groups for Baha'is called consultation. And the technique that we use in the band is one of the most um, well-functioning versions of that process that I've ever been involved in, in 30 years of being a Baha'i. The band is the best example that I can think of because there's a tangible result. Mm. And you can say, okay, here is the version of You Are My Sunshine that people normally do. Here's our version of You Are My Sunshine. Here's how it came from A to be and here's all the steps and everybody's input and all the adjustments that that were made and all the all the um, emphasis of each person's skill set and beauty you know so for me as a band leader I, I, I was not at all conscious of it but subconsciously it very much was at play and uh, and I'm, I'm quite aware of it now Finally, I want to ask you, just based on the things you've just said, after almost 20 years together with these same people, have you, as a band, develop, developed techniques so that you don't, you know, kill each other on road trips? And I mean, it's, it seems like any family where, you know. No, absolutely. I think we give each other a lot of space. And I have changed a lot over time, uh, you know, just being older and being a singer and knowing that I have to do very little on the day of a show. So whereas the guys frequently will go out for pizza or something after the show, I rarely do that anymore. And I've made it a point to tell them, it's not because I don't want to hang with you. It's because I, I physically can't do this. And, uh, um, and I think as time goes by, we kind of have a, 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 a more deep appreciation from each other uh, um, than ever, in a sense. Um, and we try to understand one another's sensitivities and, and, and stuff. I mean, I think, you know, if there's a kind of, I really think it's sort of like this weird thing. I mean, I, I wonder if people really functioned this way in the world. It's as if um, our spiritual practice necessitates getting along with each other. It just necessitates it. So we, for the most part, figure out what we need to do to get along. And uh, it's not that we don't have tensions. We certainly do. But it seems like they get easier over time. And at the same time, we've had a couple of situations in the last couple of years where we've had uh, a few players sub in the band. We just did a couple of dates with with another pianist, Mitch Foreman. And... The interesting thing is that the band 
isn't really about us anymore. The arrangements have so much freedom and people that really love the music and are willing to do the work to, to hop into it can, can enter our little world. Mm. And it's very interesting when it happens. Um, and it's not, it's not uh, an entirely bad thing. It's a very difficult thing to do because we have 150 arrangements to learn, but it's very interesting because the, the way that they've been crafted is not determined that it has to be this person and it has to be exactly this way. So it's, it's, it's interesting. My guest is Tierney Sutton. The Tierney Sutton Band's new CD is American Road, and it has been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you for doing it. Thanks so much for having me. music from vocalist Tierney Sutton. I'm Jason Crane. This is The Jazz Session, sponsored by Matt Rock, Murat Verdi, and Nicholas Payton. Thanks so much for listening. Please do become a member. Please review the show in iTunes. Please visit my other project, jasoncrane.org, and buy my book, if you would. And until next time, get out there and support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on The Jazz Session. Bye. Bye. Bye.